Hello, listeners. So I figured it's time for another chapter in Slaughterhouse Five. Um, this one is a boozy episode. I have a beer. Um, this one is called Tiki Time. It is a tropical spiced pineapple, passion fruit, and guava smoothie sour. It is delicious comes in this really cool awesome can too i will put it up on my instagram which i have changed the name it is damned underscore book underscore and beer so that is the new uh, ig for uh, this podcast um so we're going to be starting with chapter five of Slaughterhouse-Five. So, let's get started. A little note. The sound is not that great. I am actually still recording on my phone. And the microphone, I don't know what is happening, but it will not hook up. So, I do apologize for the sound. I have a friend of mine who has actually a sound studio that I'm hoping and praying to get into and just do, like, a big mass reading. Um, so, so it goes. <laughs> All right. Y'all enjoy the reading. I'm going to enjoy reading to you. Chapter 5 of Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut Billy Pilgrim says that the universe does not look like a lot of bright little dots to the creatures from Tralfamador. The creatures can see where each star has been and where it is going. So the heavens are filled with rarefied, luminous spaghetti. The Trifamidorians don't see human beings as two-legged creatures either. They see them as millipedes, with babies' legs at one end and old people's legs at the other, says Billy Pilgrim. Billy asked for something to read on the trip to Trifamidor. His captors had five million earthling books on microfilm, but they had no way to project them into Billy's cabin. They had only one actual book in English, which would be placed in a Trafamidorian museum. It was The Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Susan. Billy read it, thought it was pretty good in some spots. There were people in it that certainly had their ups and downs, ups and downs. But Billy didn't want to read about the same ups and downs over and over again. He asked there wasn't, please, some other reading material around. Only Trifamidorian novels, which I'm afraid you couldn't begin to understand, said the speaker on the wall. Well, let me look at one anyway. So they sent him in several. They were little things, a dozen of them, 
might have made up the bulk of Valley of the Dolls with all of its ups and downs and ups and downs. Billy couldn't read Trump Femidorian, of course. He could at least see how the books were laid out in brief clumps of symbols separated by stars. Billy commented that the clumps might be telegrams. Exactly, said the voice. They are telegrams? There are no telegrams on Trafamidar, but you're right. The clump of symbols is a brief, urgent message describing a situation, a scene. We Trafamidorians read them all at once, not one after another. There isn't any particular relationship between all the messages, except that the author has chosen them very carefully. So when they are seen all at once, they can produce an image of life that is beautiful, surprising, and deep. There is no beginning, no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time. Moments after that, the saucer entered a tom warp, and Billy was flung back into his childhood. He was twelve years old, quaking as he stood with his mother and father on Bright Angel Point, on the rim of the Grand Canyon. The little human family was standing at the floor of the canyon, one mile straight down. Well, said Billy's father, manfully kicking a pebble into space, there it is. We have come to the, this famous place by automobile. We have had several blowouts, by the way. It was very worth the trip, said Billy's mother rapidly. Oh, God, was it worth it. Billy hated the canyon. He was sure he was going to fall in. His mother touched him and he wet his pants. There were other tourists looking down into the canyon too, and the ranger was right there to answer questions. A Frenchman who had come all the way from France asked the ranger in broken English how many people have committed suicide by jumping in. Oh, yes sir, said the ranger. Mm, about three folks a year. So it goes. And Billy took a very short trip through time, made a peewee jump of only 10 days. So he's only 12, still touring the West with his family. Now they were going down into the Carlsbad Caverns, and Billy was praying to God to get him out of there before the ceiling fell in. A ranger was explaining to the cat that the caverns had been discovered by a cowboy who saw a huge cloud of bats and came out of a hole in the ground. And then he said it was probably turned out all the lights. And then it was probably be the first time in the lives of most people that they had ever been in darkness that was total. And out went the lights. Billy didn't know whether he was alive or not. There was something ghostly po floating in air to his left. It had numbers on it. His father had taken out his pocket watch, and it had a radium dial. 
Billy went from total dark to total life, found himself back in the war, back in the delousing station. The shower was on. An unseen hand had turned the shower off. When Billy got his clothes back on, they weren't any cleaner, but the little animals that had been living them were now dead. So it goes. And his new overcoat had thawed out and was limp now. It was much too small for Billy. It had a fur collar and a G of crimson silk and had apparently been made for an impresio as big as an organ grinder's monkey. And it was full of bullet holes. Billy Pilgrim dressed himself. He put on the little overcoat too. He split it up the back. At the shoulders, the sleeves came entirely free. So the coat became a fur-lined, collared vest. It was really meant to flare the owner's waist, but the flaring took place at Billy's armpits. The Germans found him to be one of the most screamingless funny things they had ever seen in all of the Second World War. They laughed and laughed, and the Germans told everyone to form in ranks of five, with Billy as their pivot. Then out the doors went the parade, through the gate, after gate, after gate again. There were more starving Russians with faces like radium dials. The Americans were livelier than before. The jazzing with hot water had cheered them up. They came into a shed where a corporal, with only one arm and one eye, wrote the name and serial number of each prisoner in big red ledger. Everyone was legally alive now. But before they got their names and numbers that went in the book, they went missing in action. Probably dead. So it goes. As the Americans were waiting to move on, an altercation broke out in the rearmost rank. An American had muttered something which the guard did not like. The guard knew English, and he hauled the American out of the ranks and knocked him down. The American was astonished. He stood up shakily, spitting blood. He had two teeth knocked out. He had meant no harm by what he had said evidently had no idea the guard would hear and understand. Why me? he asked the guard. The guard shoved him back in, into ranks. Why you? Why anybody? he said. Billy Pilgrim's name was inscribed in the ledger of the prison camp. He was given a number two and an iron dog tag which the number was stamped. A slave laborer from Poland had done the stamping. He was dead now. So it goes. Billy was told to hang the tag around his neck along with his American dog tags, which he did. The tag looked like a salt cracker perforated down the middle so that a strong man could snap it in two with his bare hands. In case Billy died, and which he couldn't, didn't, Half the tag would mark his body, and the other half would mark his grave. 
After poor Edgar Derby, the high school teacher, was shot in Dresden later on, a doctor pronounced him dead and snapped his dog tag in two. So it goes. Properly enrolled and tagged, the Americans were led through gate after gate after gate again. In the two days' time, now their families would learn from the International Red Cross that they were alive. Next to Billy was little Paul Lazaro, who promised to avenge Roland Weary. Lazaro wasn't thinking about vengeance. He was just thinking about his terrible bellyache. His stomach had shrunk to the size of a walnut. That drawl, shriveled pouch was a sore's boil. Next to Lazario was poor, doomed, old Edgar Derby, with his American and German dogs displayed like a necklace on the outside of his clothes. He had expected to become a captain, a company commander. Because of his wisdom and age, now he was on the Czechoslovakian border at midnight. Hot said a guard. The Americans halted. They stood there quietly in the cold. The sheds were among outwardly like thousands of other sheds they had passed. There was this difference, though. The sheds had ten chimneys, and out of the chimneys whirled constellations of sparks. A guard knocked on the door. The door flung open from inside. Light leaped out the door, escaped from prison at 186,000 miles per second. They marched 50 middle-aged Englishmen, and they were singing, Hail, hail, the gang's all here, from the pirates of Pezzanine. These lusty, ruddy vocalists were among the first English-speaking prisoners to be taken in the Second World War. They were singing to nearly the last. They had not seen a woman or child in four years or more. They had not seen any birds, either. Not even sparrows would come into the camp. The Englishmen were officers. Each of them had attempted escape from another prison at least once. Now they're here, dead center, in a sea of dying Russians. They could tunnel all they pleased. They would inevitably surface within a rectangle of barbed wire, which find themselves greeted listlessly by dying Russians who spoke no English, who had no food and no useful information or no escape plans of their own. They could scheme all they pleased to hide in a board a vehicle or steal one, but no vehicle ever came into the compound. They would feign illness if they liked, but that wouldn't earn them a trip anywhere, either. The only hospital in the camp was a six-bed affair with the British in the British compound itself. The Englishmen had been lifting weights and chinning themselves for years. Their bellies were like washboards. 
The muscles of their calves and upper arms were like cannonballs. They were all masters of checkers and chess, bridge, cribbage, dominoes, and anagrams, charades, ping-pong, billiards, as well. They were among the wealthiest people in Europe, in terms of food. A clerical error early in the war, when food was still getting through to the prisoners, had caused the Red Cross to ship them 500 parcels every month, instead of 50. The Englishmen had hoarded these so cunningly that now, as the world was end- as the war was ending, they had three tons of sugar, one ton of coffee, eleven hundred pounds of chocolate, seven hundred pounds of tobacco, seventeen hundred pounds of tea, two tons of flour, one ton of canned beef, twelve hundred pounds of canned butter, sixteen hundred pounds of canned cheese, eight hundred pounds of powdered milk, and two tons of orange marmalade. They kept it all in this room without windows. They had rat-proofed it by lining it with flattened tin cans. They were adored by the Germans, who thought they were exactly what Englishmen ought to be. They made war look stylish and reasonable and fun. So the Germans let them have their four sheds. The one shed would have held tobacco. The Germans gave them paint and lumber and nails and cloth for fixing things up. The Englishman had only known for 12 hours that the American guests were on their way. They had never had guests before, and they began to work like daring elves, sweeping, mopping, cooking, bake-making, mattresses of straw and burlap bags, setting tables, putting party favors at each place. Now they were singing their welcome to the guests in the winter night. Their clothes were aromatic with the feast they had been preparing. They were dressed half for battle, half for tennis, maybe croquet. They were so elated by their own hospitality and by all the goodies waiting for them inside that they did not take a good look at the guests while they sang. They imagined they were singing to fellow officers fresh from the fray. They wrestled the Americans toward the shed door affectionately, filling the night with manly blather and brotherly rumphamnods. They called them Yank, told them good show, and promised them that Jerry was on the run, and so on. Billy Pilgrim wondered dimly who Jerry was. Now he was indoors, next to an iron cook stove that was glowing cherry red. Dozens of teapots were boiling there. Some of them had whistles, and there were witches. There were witches' cauldrons full of golden soup. The soup was thick. Primeval bubbles surfaced with their lethargic majesty as Pilgrim stared. There were long tables set for a banquet. At each place was a bowl made from a can that once contained powdered milk. A smaller can was a cup. A taller, more slender can was a tumbler. Each tumbler was filled with warm milk. At each place, there was a safety razor, a washcloth, 
a package of razor blades, a chocolate bar, two cigars, a bar of soap, ten cigarettes, a book of matches, a pencil, and a candle. Only the candles and the soap were of German origin. They had a ghostly, opalescent similarity. The British had no way of knowing it, but the candles and the soap were made from the fat of rendered Jews and gypsies and fairies and communists and other enemies of the state. So it goes. The banquet hall was illuminated by candlelight. There were heaps of fresh bread on the tables and gobs of butter, pots of marmalade. There were platters of sliced beef from cans, soup, scrambled eggs, and hot marmalade pie were yet to come. And at the far end of the shed, Billy saw pink arches with azure draperies hanging from them, and an enormous clock, and two golden thrones, and a bucket, and a mop. It was this setting the evening's entertainment would take place. The musical version of Cinderella, the most popular story ever told. Billy Pilgrim was on fire, having stood close to the glowing stove. The hem of his little coat was burning. It was a quiet, patient, sort of fire-like, the burning of punk. Billy wondered if there was a telephone somewhere. He wanted to call his mother to tell her that he was alive and well. There was silence now as the Englishmen looked in astonishment at the frowsy creatures that they had justly waltzed inside. One of the Englishmen saw Billy was on fire. You're on fire, lad, he said. He got Billy away from the stove and beat the sparks out with his hands. When Billy made no comment on this, the, English asked, the Englishman asked, Can you talk? Can you hear? Billy nodded. The Englishman touched him exploratory here and there, filled with pity. My God, what have they done to you, lad? This isn't a man, it's a broken kite. Are you really American? said the Englishman. Yes, said Billy. And your rank? Private. What has become of your boots, lad? I don't remember. Is that coat a joke? Sir? Where did you get such a thing? Billy had to think hard about that. Um, they gave it to me. At last. Jerry gave it to you. Who's Jerry? The Germans. The Germans gave it to you. Yes. Billy didn't like their questions. They were fatiguing. Oh, oh, yank, 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 said the Englishman. That coat was an insult. Sir? It was a deliberate attempt to humiliate you. You mustn't let Jerry do things like that. Billy Pilgrim swooned. Billy came onto a chair facing the stage. He somehow eaten and now was watching Cinderella. 
Some parts of him were evidently been enjoying the performance for quite a while. Billy was laughing really hard. The women in the play were really men, of course, and the clock had struck midnight, and Cinderella was lamenting. Goodness me, the clock has struck. Alec a day and fuck my luck. Billy found the couplet so comical that he not only laughed, he shrieked. He went on shrieking until he was carried out of the shed and into another where the hospital was. It was a six-bed hospital, and there weren't any other patients there. Billy was put to bed and tied down. He was given a shot of morphine. Another American volunteered to watch over him. This volunteer was Edgar Derby, the high school teacher who would be shot to death in Dresden. So it goes. Derby sat on a three-legged stool. He was given a book to read. The book was A Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane. Derby had read it before, and now he read it again while Billy Pilgrim entered a morphine paradise. Under morphine, Billy dreamt of giraffes in a garden. The giraffes were following gravel paths and pushing munch sugar pears from treetops. Billy was a giraffe too. He ate a pear. It was a hard one. It fought back against his grinding teeth. It snapped in juicy protest. The giraffes accepted Billy as one of their own, as a harmless creature as preposterously specialized as themselves. The two approached him from opposite sides, leaned against him. They had long, muscular legs. And... <laughs> oh my god, this stuff is starting to hit a little bit. Anyway, um, they had long, muscular upper lips, which they could shape like the bells of bugles. They kissed him with these. They were female giraffes, cream and yellow. They had horns like doorknobs. The knobs were covered with velvet. Why? The night came into the garden of the giraffes, and Billy Pilgrim slept without dreaming for a while. And he traveled in time. He woke up with his head under a blanket, an award for nonviolent mental patients in a veterans hospital near Lake Placid, New York. It was springtime in 1948, three years after the war. Billy uncovered his head. The windows of the ward were open. Birds were twitting outside. Pooty tweet, pooty tweet, one asked him. The sun was high. There were 29 other patients assigned to the ward. They were all outdoors now, enjoying the day. They were free to come and go as they pleased. To go home, even. And if they liked, so was Billy Pilgrim. 
they had all come here voluntarily, alarmed by the outside world. Billy had committed himself in the middle of his final year of Ilium School of Optometry. Nobody else suspected that he was going crazy. Everyone else thought he looked fine and was acting fine, and now he's in the hospital, and the doctors agreed. He was going crazy. They didn't think it had anything to do with the war. They weren't sure Billy was going to pieces because his father had thrown him into the deep end of the YMCA swimming pool when he was a little boy and had taken him to the rim of the Grand Canyon. The man assigned to the bed next to Billy's was former infantry captain Elliot Rosewater. Rosewater was sick and tired of being a drunk all the time. It was Rosewater who introduced Billy to science fiction, in particular the writings of Kilgore Trout, who I believe you learn about in uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night or Breakfast of Champions. I can't remember, but it's a little, a little shout out to the sci-fi writer of Kurt Vonnegut. He brought them to the hospital in a steamer truck. Those beloved frumpish books gave off a smell that permeated the war like flannel pajamas that had not been changed for a month. Or maybe like Irish stew. Kilgore Trout began Billy's favorite living author, and science fiction became the only sort of tales he read. Rosewater was twice as smart as Billy, and he and Billy were de dealing with similar crises in similar ways. They both found life meaningless, partly because of what they had seen in the war. Rosewater for instance, had shot a 14-year-old fireman, mistaking him for a German soldier. So it goes. Billy had seen the greatest massacre in European history was the firebombing of Dresden. So it goes. So they were trying to reinvent themselves and the universe. Science fiction was a big help. Rosewater said in an interesting thing to Billy one time that a book wasn't science fiction. He said everything in the book was to know about life was in The Brothers Karmanoff by Fedor Drukowski. But that isn't enough anymore, said Rosewater. Another time Billy heard Rosewater say to a psychiatrist, I think you guys are going to have to come up with a lot. Wonderful new lies, or people are just going to want to go on living. There was a still life of Billy Pilgrim's bedside table, two pills in an ashtray, with three lipsticks stained cigarettes in it. The cigarette was still burning, and the glass of water. The water was dead, so it goes. Air was trying to get out of that dead water. Bubbles were clinging to the side of the glass, too, too weak to climb out. 
The cigarettes belonged to Billy's chain-smoking mother. She sought out the ladies' room, which was off the ward for the WACS and WAVES and SPARS and WAFS, who had gone bananas. She would be back any moment now. Billy covered his head with his blanket again. He always covered his head when his mother came to see him in the mental ward. Always got much sicker until she went away. It wasn't that she was ugly or had bad breath or bad personality. She was a perfectly nice, standard-issue, brown-haired, white woman with a high school education. She upset Billy simply by being his mother. She made him feel embarrassed and ungrateful and weak because she had gone to so much trouble to give him life and to keep that life going. And Billy didn't like life at all. Billy heard Elliot Rosewater come in and lie down. Rosewater's bed springs talked a lot about that. Rosewater was a big man, but not very powerful. He looked as though he might have been made of putty. And then Billy's mother would come back from the ladies' room, sat on the chair between Billy and Rosewater's bed. Rosewater greeted him with a melodious warm, asked how she was today. He seemed delighted to hear that she was fine. He was experimenting with being ardently sympathetic with everybody he met. He thought that it might make the world a slightly more pleasant place to live. He called Billy's mom dear. He was experimenting with calling everybody dear. Someday, he pro she promised Rosewater, I'm going to come in here and Billy's going to uncover his head and you know what he's going to say? What is that he's going to say, dear? He's going to say, hello, mom. And he's going to smile. And he's going to say, gee, it's nice to see you, mom. How have you been? Today could be the day. Every night I pray. That's a good thing to do. People would be surprised if they knew how much this world was due to prayers. You never, you never said a truer word, dear. Does your mother come here often to see you? My mother's dead, said Rosewater. So it goes. I'm sorry. At least she had a happy life as long as it lasted. That's a consultation anyway. Billy's father is dead, you know, and Billy's mother. So it goes. A boy needs a father. And on and on it went, the duet between the dumb praying lady and the big hollow man so full of loving echoes. He was top of his class when it happened, said Billy Pilgrim, mother. Maybe he was working too hard, said Rosewater. He held a book he wanted to read, but he was much too polite to read and talk, too. It was easy to give Billy's mother satisfactory answers. The book was Maniacs in the Fourth Dimension by Kilgore Trout. It was about people whose mental illness couldn't be treated because the causes of the diseases were all in the fourth dimension. 
and the three-dimensional earthlings couldn't see those causes at all or even imagine them. One thing Trout said about Rosewater Light very much that there were vampires and werewolves and goblins and angels and so on but they were in the fourth dimension. So was William Blake, Rosewater's favorite poem, according to Trout. So were Heaven and Hell. He was engaged to a very rich girl, said Billy's mother. That's good, said Rosewater. Money can be a great comfort sometimes. Oh, it really can. Of course it can. It isn't much fun if you have to pinch every penny until it screams. It's nice to have a little breathing room. Her father owns an optometry school and Billy was going. He also owns six offices around the part of our state. He flies his own plane and has a summer place up on Lake George. It's a beautiful lake. Billy fell asleep under his blanket, and when he woke up again, he was tied to the bed in the hospital in the prison. He had one open eye, saw poor Edgar Derby reading The Red Badge of Courage by candlelight. Billy closed the one eye he saw on the memory of poor old Edgar Derby in front of the firing squad in the ruin of Dresden's. There were only four men in that squad. Billy had heard that one man in each firing squad was customarily given the rifle loaded with a blank cartridge. Billy didn't think there would be a blank cartridge issued in a squad that small in a war that old. But now the head Englishman had come into the hospital to check on Billy. He was an infantry colonel captured in Dunkirk. It was when he had given Billy morphine. There wasn't a real doctor in the compound, so the doctor was up to him. How's the patient? he asked Derby. Dead to the world. But not actually dead. No. How nice it is to feel nothing and still get credit for being alive. Derby now came to lubricist attention. No, no, please, as you were, as you were. With only two men for each officer and all the men sick. I think we can do without the usual pageantry between officers and men. Derby remained standing. You seem older than the rest of the colonel. Derby told him he was 45, which was two years older than the colonel. The colonel said that there were other Americans that had all shaved now, and that Billy and Derby were the only two still left with beards and he said you know we have to imagine the war here we have imagined it had been fought by aging men like ourselves we had forgotten that wars were fought by babies when I saw 
one of those freshly shaven faces. It was a shock. My God. My God, I said to myself. It's the children's crusade. So we're going to stop here. One, because I'm starting to like slur the words a little. And um, we don't want it, you know, too boozy. Plus, uh, the other name of, of Slaughterhouse-Five is the Children's Crusade. So that's where it came from. Uh, so we're going to end it. And I hope all of you listeners have a good night or morning or afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Coming from Charleston, South Carolina, this is Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut.